and all these things will be added unto you. And then there's a biblical word added to that. Uh, in the song we're about to sing, it simply says, Alleluia, which means? Praise the Lord, or praise you the Lord, or praise God. I think you'll catch a tune. You'll be remembered, I believe. Let's begin by just singing that proclamation to the Lord. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Alleluia, alleluia. One more time. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Alleluia, Alleluia. Lord, we're so thankful tonight for the opportunity that You've given us to gather in this place to study Your Word. Your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and we confess tonight Lord, that we're here so we can learn more and understand more, so we can do more, be more obedient to you. Lord, we want to have our hearts and our minds conformed to the image of the Son of God. We want you to transform our thinking, transform our minds, change our hearts, help us to grow and mature and be what you've called us to be. That means you're going to need to teach us because we don't know everything we need to know we are not already the things that you want us to be. We're all still growing. We're all still learning. Help this pastor tonight. Help each of us who are here, Lord, to learn, to have our eyes open, to have our hearts open to you. Speak to us. Help us, Lord. Encourage us tonight. Help us to be what you desire for us to be this night and in the days ahead. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In your Bibles, we come tonight to the book of Ephesians. We have been kind of, um, um, well, I don't know what the word is, because of the holidays and, and some threatening weather and so forth. It's been a while since we left Galatians, and now we're at Ephesians, and I've already preached two Sunday sermons on Ephesians. So you might think, well, there's nothing left. Oh, boy. <laughs> we got one more Sunday in Ephesians, and then tonight, and then next Wednesday night, Lord willing, we'll be in Philippians, and then Sunday in Philippians, and then and do get back on our, our pattern of a Bible study on Wednesday night, and then a sermon on Sunday from the same book of the Bible. But the book of Ephesians is so rich. My goodness, the depth. Um, just think with me for a moment about the last couple of weeks. Be ye imitators of God. Is that not an awesome subject and deep that we're supposed to imitate God? And he tells us how to do that here. He is a, a holy God. He tells us to be holy. He's a God of love. He tells us to be loving. And the things that he is, he tells us to be. We're to be imitators of God. That's a, You could write a book on that. And then this past week, we... Uh, um, looked at what the Scripture had to say about uh, undistractifying ourselves in 2018. Um, an unusual approach, I guess, to be sure. Uh, but hopefully we got the message that there are so many distractions in this world that take our minds away from the Word of God and the ways of God. We'll find ourselves entrapped in all kinds of um, ungodly thinking and attitudes if we're not careful so far away from him, and we just need to make sure that we don't get distracted from the things that are really, really important. In the Lord's eyes, it's, um, after all, I'm not trying to please you, and you're not trying to please me. We're all trying to please who? Trying to please God. 
it's, it's him one day that's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's not worth a whole lot if I tell you that. But boy, when the Lord tells you that at the end of the way, it's going to mean something big time. And so that's what we're striving for. So we continue our study tonight um, in the book of Ephesians. And I'm going to, um, uh, it's kind of a shotgun approach because we've already hit some highlights in Ephesians. We're going to catch some more tonight. And then I think something really important on Sunday that I would encourage you to be here for. I, I think it's, it's going to be an encouraging sermon Sunday. Um, I think you'll, be, you'll feel good about being a Christian Sunday. Uh, when it's all said and done, to think, wow, I have an opportunity. I have the privilege of being involved in that. I'm a part of that. And um, I think that's, uh, uh, that's what uh, Paul wants us to see in the book of Ephesians from, from those lessons that we'll learn there. As we start out, Ephesians is, um, is the name of a New Testament book because it was written to the people who lived in what city? Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was a metropolitan area. There were a lot of people there. I don't know what figure you would use in your own mind if I were to ask you, what do you consider a large city? But I think all of you would agree with me that if I were to tell you, and I'm going to tell you this, not if I would tell you, but when I tell you that the metropolis of Ephesus in Old Testament times uh, is thought to be 250,000 plus. That's a lot of folks, right? Hey, that's not lizard lick, folks. That's a whole lot of people. 250,000 people. And there is um, this, this metropolitan area, this city called Ephesus, um, is a pagan city. It is full of worldliness. It is filled with wickedness. It is filled with all the things that pagans would do. Um, in that city, there is a temple there, uh, the Temple of Diana, or if you were if you were talking about, uh, I, I think the Romans called it Diana, the Greeks called it uh, Artemis, or vice versa. I can't remember which is which. They talk about the same person, Diana or Artemis. The temple was there. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. And does anybody remember uh, where there was a stir? And we read this in the book of Acts. There was a stir. There was a riot, in fact, in uh, the city of Ephesus over something. Does anybody remember who stirred up that riot in the city of Ephesus? There were some silversmiths, some craftsmen of silver, who made um, little statues and um, little statues and um, trinkets and things that were associated with the Temple of Diana, souvenirs, if you will. Like if you go to New York City, you see little souvenirs of of all the sites there. If you go to Washington D.C. area, you can buy little metal. Um, reproductions of the White House and the Capitol building and so forth. Well, they did that then. Uh, there were there were little um, figurines of Diana, um, the goddess Diana. There were other uh, of the temple itself, and, and they made their living doing this. And it was quite a lucrative thing because this was one of the seven wonders of the world. There was a lot of tourism there, people coming in, 250,000 people, a whole lot of folks. And so... It was a big deal, but when Paul went and stayed there for three years preaching the gospel, and, and his message began to take, in other words, some people began to believe that. Some people were converted from paganism to Christianity, and they began to serve the living and the true God, which meant that they had to do what with Diana? or turn their back on that whole system, stay away from the temple. They, they went against all that they had ever known and learned and been a part of and turned to Jesus Christ and became Christians. And when the silversmiths start losing business because the Christians are growing so rapidly 
and coming against and preaching against Diana of the Ephesians and telling people they need to turn to Christ and pagan people are being saved, what are these, these silversmiths going to do, you think? Are they going to be happy or sad? That mad is a better word, thank you, than, than sad. They're getting irate because they're losing income. So in the book of Acts, they get together and they bring all these accusations against Paul and they go into the theater which was there, which seated thousands and thousands like a like an NFL stadium. I mean, it just seated thousands of people there. We're not talking about the... Roseville Park up here, you know, the little, we're not talking about that. We're talking about a mega stadium seating thousands and thousands of people. And they filled the place and there was a riot. And, and because, you know what, when you tell the truth, when you preach the gospel and tell the truth, the world's not going to like it, right? It's not going to be popular. And so people, when it begins to, to cost, hit them back here in their pocketbook, they lose funds, they lose profits. Uh, because of the things you're preaching, it goes against what they've been taught. They're going to rise up. They're going to riot. They're not going to like it. And because, and, and Paul spent three years in Ephesus because of the message he preached and the way that the people responded and received Christ. Um, and that was not only at Ephesus, but other places that he went to. He eventually was imprisoned and spent years locked up in a prison. Paul wrote this book of the Bible we call Ephesians, while he was in prison. We talked about this Sunday. If you'll look uh, at chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. He mentions it there. Chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering and bearing with one another love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're going to see that unity is extremely important in this book of the Bible. And then um, in chapter 3, verse 13, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is for your glory. So... What we see is that Paul was in prison. He's not feeling sorry for himself. He's not saying to the people there, please pray that I can get out. As we saw Sunday, by, on the contrary, he's asking for prayer in chapter 6. He says, pray for me. Pray for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. That in it, in this trouble, in this trial, in this prison, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I think that says volumes about Paul and who he was and what his priorities in life were. Now, as we go through the uh, book of Ephesians, and I'm not going to say much about this because I want to deal with this Sunday. But in the book of Ephesians, Paul gives us a a figure, an illustration um, of how we can understand the church. The, the book of Ephesians, talking about the church, um, that word church in the original is ecclesia. Um, does anybody know what ecclesia means? Don't say church. We know that. The word ecclesia is, is made up of two words. It's a compound word. Ek in Greek is out. And ecclesia, is the word, original word is kaleo, but it means to call. So this word ecclesia, this compound word, simply means those who are called out. That's what church means, the called out ones. Well, let me ask you, what are we called out of? Called out of the world, exactly right. What else are we called out of? Sin. And, and so what the word that is used, Jesus used this word, incidentally, himself. Jesus said, 
I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Listen, folks, you don't ever have to worry about the church. Church is going to make it. Amen? Because Jesus said the gates of hell can't stop it. The church is going to make it. Your concern and my concern is, am I going to be in it? Am I going to be part of it? Or am I going to be deceived and found away from this, this group that are called the called out ones? We have been called out. Now, this is interesting to me. In, the, um, in Bible days, this word was referred, this word described the, like the city council. In the city of Ephesus, there would have been a lot of different people who were rulers in the city. They had great influence, right? And this group was called the Ecclesia. So when, in some places in the New Testament, it says, and when the assembly was called together, that's not the assembly of Christians, it was the assembly of those influential leaders in the community. And when the assembly was called together, it's the same word, Ecclesia. They don't use the word church when they translate it when it refers to the city council. They're, they're the called out ones in our community because we have called them out and placed them in office to do particular business for us. They're the called out ones. But when it comes to the church, we are the called out ones in this world. We have been selected by God with a divine purpose, which we'll give some attention to Sunday and the following Sunday from the book of Philippians, uh, with an assignment. We have an assignment from God. We have been... Remember the days of the draft? Some of you don't remember that, I know. Because I don't even remember it myself from an experiential viewpoint. I'm 61 years old, and the year that I was in... I was a senior in high school, the year that they stopped the draft. So I still had to register for the draft, but I didn't have to worry about the draft because it was over. But prior to that, it's my understanding, and Eddie, you can help me with this, maybe Dad or some of you who were around, they, they had a, like a lottery and they chose a certain number of people, and if they chose your number, uh, you didn't have to volunteer to go. You went, right? Because you got drafted, uh, and you were called out. Well, that's kind of what this is all about. We have been called out with an assignment and a responsibility to stand for God and do the things that He's called us to do because we have been called out. We are the called out ones. Now, let's, let's look at several things in the book of Ephesians tonight as we um, use our next uh, 40 minutes or so. Um, I'm going to not say much about the, the church as the body of Christ tonight, except that it talks about that we are the body and that Jesus is the head of the church. Okay? And we'll deal with that Sunday. And this building, I'm not going to talk much about it tonight, but the Bible says that the, um, the church is a, a, like a building that God is building, and Jesus Christ Himself is the chief cornerstone. So you know what? Like if you take a, like the the seat on one of these chairs, a square. Imagine that being cornerstone. Just a, it's not exactly the way it was, but it gets, it's a good picture for us. You take that square rock, and you put it right where you want the the corner of the building to be, right? And then you start building the building according to the way that, long, that cornerstone was laid. You don't build the building and then put the cornerstone down. You put the cornerstone down first and plant that and get it exactly like you want it facing a certain way. And then you build the building according to the cornerstone. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone and the apostles and the prophets are the foundation that connect to the cornerstone, and then the rest of us now are to be very careful how we build on His building, right? We have to be very careful because we build according to what has already been begun, the chief cornerstone with the foundation of apostles and prophets and so forth. That's the prominent New Testament theme. So uh, 
let's just put corner here because that's extremely important. We'll talk more about that Sunday. And then the bride. Who is the bride? We are. I'd like for all the men to raise your hand. It's okay to be considered a bride tonight. Uh, all of us, it's, it's an awkward thing, I know. I had to struggle through that a couple times thinking, well, we, we're the bride of Christ, we're, we're men. But collectively, it's an illustration to help us understand we are the bride and who is the groom, the bridegroom? Jesus is, exactly right. And there are some tremendous lessons there to be learned. So as the church, which is what Ephesians is largely about, the called out ones, um, we're going to talk about the body of Christ Sunday and the building or the temple of God Sunday and then the bride of Christ. The body, the building, and the bride of Christ. So now let's move forward and talk about some of the other things uh, that are extremely important as we as we study through Ephesians. This is this is really important. In Ephesians chapter one, verse ten. I'll tell you, just for the sake of context, let me begin at verse 7. Um, in Him, speaking about Christ, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will. In other words, there was something we didn't know until He revealed it to us. It was a mystery, but now it is known. Now it is understood. He's going to tell us what that is. According to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself. In other words, God had a plan, and when it was time for that plan to be initiated or to unfold, then, then it happened, verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, He might gather together in one... All things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance. Let's stop here for just a moment uh, as we get this in our minds. In the Old Testament, primarily, God revealed Himself to what group of people? Exactly, the Jews. God revealed Himself... To the Jews. He made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15. I want you to go uh, to a land that I'll call you to, to a land you've never been to. Um, I'll bless you, Abraham. Your seed, your inheritance will be like the stars of the heavens, the sand on the seashore. Uh, I'll bless those that bless you and curse those who curse you. And so from that promise came... Uh, the Jews or the the Israelites, and they still are today uh, the recipients of that promise. God's, God's Word has not failed. That's why we are excited and pleased in America as Christians to see that we still stand with Israel. Amen? Because anytime we no longer stand with Israel, we're in trouble because we're going against God and against what His Word says. But God has revealed Himself to the Jews. And I might say that the purpose He revealed Himself to the Jews was so that the Jews could then turn around and reveal God to the rest of us. It wasn't so that they could be selfish. It wasn't because they were deserving and nobody else was. They were the, they were the receptacle, the people through whom God wanted to reveal Himself to everybody else. So God revealed Himself to the Jews and taught them His ways, uh, how He felt about things, gave them the Ten Commandments, gave them the law, um, helped them understand what pleased God, what didn't. Uh, he said to them, you're the apple of my eye. You, I want you to be holy, for I, the Lord God, am holy. We, there again, we're to be imitators of God. So the Jews um, had a, a pretty good understanding of who they were in the God in God's eyes, and somebody tell me how they felt about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were, weren't they? They were they were proud of it. Uh, as a matter of fact, they were just 
plain old arrogant about it in a lot of cases. We read in the New Testament where some of them were saying, we're Abraham's seed. Uh, I mean, nothing's going to happen to us. We're God's people. And, and that's the kind of attitude they had. But they never were... They never were saved. They never were God's people with God's favor necessarily because of who they were. It's because God had a purpose for them. And that was to share the gospel and to declare the glory of God to other peoples. So if you weren't a Jew, what were you? You were a Gentile. Jews and Gentiles. There's only two groups. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So most of us here probably all of us here tonight, would be uh, Gentiles. Uh, I know we've got a Jew in there for the kids. Tia is Jewish. But we are Gentiles. Now, how did the Jews feel about the Gentiles? We were beneath them. That's polite. <laughs> <laughs> they were beneath them. The Jews, the Jews really... How, somebody tell me like it is. How'd they really feel about the Gentiles? Tell me how you really feel on that. They hated them. They hated them. That's, that's not too strong a word either. They hated them. They despised them. And um, called them dogs. Absolutely. And this is the group of people that they were really supposed to be reaching. <laughs> right? Okay. So the Jews hated the Gentiles. And therefore, the Gentiles, how did they look on the Jews? Pardon me? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Basically hated them back and felt the same way. So there was, there was no love lost between these two groups of people. Right? They despised one another. So let's look at what God's plan was. The Bible says, beginning at verse 11, Therefore, uh, chapter 2, by the way, chapter 2, verse 11, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Now, before we go any farther, for those who may not be um, aware of what's being talked about here, God gave a sign of the covenant to the Jews to be um, shown through the male babies that were born, and that word is what? Circumcision. I think we all know what circumcision is. And it was a sign uh, indicating who they were and who they belonged to. So when we see the word circumcision in this passage, it's referring to what group of people? Exactly. And when we see the word uncircumcision in this passage, it's referring to what group of people? Gentiles. Okay, that's good. Well, you know what? It sounds so simple once it's pointed out, but a lot of times we read it, what in the world does that mean? Well, therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. In other words, you're called uncir uncircumcised dogs by those who were circumcised, the Jews. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. How many of you know that you and I were once lost and undone with no hope, dead in trespasses and sins? Right? That's all of us. But the Bible says in verse 13, this is very important. This is extremely important. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Who was far off? Yeah, or the Gentiles were. The Gentiles were far off. But now we who are Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made both one, the Jews 
And the Gentiles are now what? When a man and his wife get married, they become what? Exactly. So now, because of what Christ has done, he's the Savior of whosoever will, by the way. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, the hatred. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and to those who were near, that's the Jews. For, both, for through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access by one spirit to the Father. That's pretty cool right there. So that means what? Somebody tell me just in, in layman's language. We're in. <laughs> Thank you, Ricky. That's good, buddy. <laughs> we're in. Not only are we in, we're in with who? The Jews. And not only are we in with the Jews, but we're still a little better than they are, aren't we? <laughs> No, 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 <laughs> no, no, <laughs> work with me, Ricky, work with me, <laughs> okay, no, we're not better than they, we're not better than the Jews, are we, they're not better than us, are they, no, because we all are one, in the same family, this thing we call the church. He's bringing us all together. That's his plan. The Bible said that was his plan. We didn't know it. We didn't understand it. We didn't dream about it. But it was in the mind of God from the beginning. He sent the Savior who would save whosoever will, whether you're Jew or Gentile. And he puts us in the same grouping together. Neither one is better than the other. And we're to love one another equally. And that same principle extends to race. It extends to economic barriers, um, what neighborhoods you come from. Listen, do you know that we are, I better shut up or I'm going to spill the beans for Sunday. We are part of, of the most wonderful thing on the face of this earth to think that God would love us enough to put us in this great big family, this grouping of people, what God has ordained from the beginning to where to where all of us are of tremendous value and importance to Him. All of us have a job to do. All of us are saved and redeemed. Nobody is better than anybody else. We're all equal. The Lord loves us all, whether you be Jew or Gentile, bond or free, slave or master, black or white, rich or poor. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. God loves us all. We have the same value. Uh, as he looks at our soul and sees us as individuals, there's, there's nobody that can stand up with arrogance and pride and look down at somebody else because all of us have came from the same cesspool as sinners, right? We've all been redeemed by the same Savior. And if it weren't for that, we would be among the lowest of the low with no hope and... Um, an eternity that did not look at all good, positive, or promising. I want to um, spend just a moment talking about uh, chapter 1, verses 5 and 11. Uh, that doesn't sound like the right reference. Well, I guess it is. There's a word in chapter 1, verse 5, having predestined us. How many have ever heard that word before? And then you see in verse um, 11 it is, we see that word again. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. So I'd like to talk about that word for just a moment, predestined or predestination. There are some people that tell us, here's what predestination means. And I'm, I'm not telling you what it means, I'm telling you what some people say it means. That God has predestined 
some people to be eternally saved. And he has predestined other people to be eternally lost. And there's nothing you can do about it. If you have been predestined to be saved, it can't be changed. You're going to be saved. And if he has predestined you to be lost, there's nothing you can do about it. You're going to be lost. That's what some people say about predestination. That's what John Calvin said, basically. However, that is not consistent with what the rest of Scripture teaches. Because the Bible teaches us that Jesus came... As a matter of fact, the Bible says, John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that... Who? Whosoever. Not, not those who've been predestined. It didn't say that. It said whosoever. The choice is up to us. Amen? The gospel has been given. The Savior has come. And the choice is up to us. Now, when we accept Him as our Savior, He has predestined us to be something. Right? He has. If, he, if, you, if you accept Him as Lord and Savior, He has predestined you to become holy, to live right, to, to walk according to the commandments of His Word. We have, there's one passage in the New Testament. We may look at it soon. It talks about how we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That is, if we come to Christ, He has already determined, if we're going to belong to Him, that we're going to have to have a change of mind, a change of heart, and be conformed and be like Jesus. Oh, that's good. Now we go back to the body again. That's right. So we're going to have to we're going to have to take seriously our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ because He has some expectations of us once we become Christians. Nobody is predestined to hell. Nobody is predestined to heaven in the sense that you're locked in and it can't be changed. My goodness, if I, listen, if I believed that, I would be tormented every day of my life wondering if I really was predestined to be saved. Wouldn't that be horrible? There would be a gnawing, am I really predestined? Am I really predestined to be saved? What if I was predestined to be lost and I'm just deceiving myself? But that's not what that means. There are some things that the children of God are predestined to be, and predestined to become, but being saved and being lost on the one hand, that's not what the Bible is talking about. That would be contrary to other places in Scripture, and we know God's Word doesn't contradict itself. So, I just wanted to clarify that, because I have had people tell me before, they thought they, were, they weren't predestined to be saved. And, boy, could the devil ever use that, right? Lie to you. And have, be, have you convinced that you couldn't accept the Lord Jesus Christ when the Bible says, whosoever will? All you got to do is say yes. Jimmy, you raise your hand there. <laughs> Chapter 4. Let's turn there. This, this kind of gets over now to those responsibilities that we have if we come to Christ and, and we yield our lives to Him. Um, in Chapter 4... Verse uh, 22. Well, let's start at verse 20 for context again. But you have not so learned Christ, or you haven't learned this from Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, here's the truth, in other words, that you put off, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Let me ask you this. Before you, before you go to bed tonight, work with me now, okay? Don't sit there and stare at me. Work with me. How many of you before you go to bed tonight, are going to take off what you got on. <laughs> okay, and let me ask you this. 
When you get up tomorrow morning before you go out into the world, how many of you going to put something else back on? <laughs> listen, listen, there are things that as Christians we are commanded to put off. Things that we used to do, things that we used to be. Our lifestyle, our behavior, our conversation. The word conversation, when you read it in the New Testament, actually means behavior. It's one of those words that has changed over the years and carries a different meaning. So when you read the word conversation in the King James Version, it doesn't mean just what you say. It means what you do. Your manner of life is the real idea there. And so the Bible says that we are to put off our old manner of life, the way we did live when we were in trespasses and sins, and that we do what? We put on the things that the Bible says that we as Christians we need to have on so that we can be more like our husband. Sorry, man, I know that doesn't... That rubs you the wrong way. I know it does. He's the bridegroom, we're the bride, remember? And we're supposed to be more like him. We're supposed to be more like Jesus. And you read through this book of the Bible and others as well that there are things that we are to put on and there are things that we are to put off. In in chapter 6, verse 11, let's see some of the things we're supposed to put on. Put on the whole armor of God. All right. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Let's talk about the wiles of the devil just a minute. Anybody watch any football Monday night? A national champion. Isn't it true that when they play football, they use some trick plays, some gimmicks, some things to throw you off? And uh, anytime you watch a game, there's a lot of deception that's going on. It's part of the game. You're trying to deceive the other team. And by the tricks that you have, you're hoping to be able to, to uh, win victory. And the Bible says that we are not ignorant and we're not unaware of Satan's, the wiles of Satan or the strategy of the Satan the game plan of Satan, or the trickery of Satan. We know that. We know what he's doing. We know what he's up to. And so the Bible says, again, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the strategy of the devil. He has a strategy. Let me ask you this. If God's plan, and I said this early on as we looked at, um, well, here we are. This, what we see on this screen here, representative of the church, the body of Christ, encompasses now those two groups, right? Jews and Gentiles. And we talked about earlier how that the word unity is extremely important. Well, extremely important in the book of Ephesians. Now, what do you think Satan's strategy would be here in this in this body? Okay. The Lord's strategy and the Lord's will is unity. The devil's strategy and his game plan would be division. Right? That's always true. And so the Bible says we have to put on the whole armor of God so that we may be able to stand against the strategy of the devil. Now, here's a bombshell right here, folks. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. I'm going to tell you what that means. You are not my enemy. And I'm not your enemy. Now, we get messed up sometimes and we get off track. And we think that people are our problem. People are not your problem. The devil is your problem. Which takes me back to what I was preaching Sunday about being distracted. We get our minds and our focus on people. We're going to get messed up as sure as the world. We have to keep looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's what we have to do. 
Because if we get our minds on people, people will irritate you. People will rub you the wrong way. You've heard me say this a dozen times. If you've been married over three days, you can exp- you know what I'm talking about. People can irritate you, right? But people are not your problem. People are not my problem. It's the devil that's the problem. So the Bible says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. My fight is not against people. My fight is against the devil. My struggle is against him because he's the one who's seeking to divide and destroy unity. The Holy Spirit comes and he's wanting to bring unity. The devil comes and he's trying to bring division. Let me tell you something. Whenever you see something going on around you that looks like unity, you can be assured the Holy Spirit's in it. And you see something that looks like division, better beware because the devil is at work. It is right. Thank you. It's very true. So we need, if, if we are wise enough to recognize these things, we can spare ourselves a ton of trouble. Amen? And we know what it is up front. That's why the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. My enemy is not people. My enemy is not men. My enemy is not women. My enemy is the devil. And I'll tell you, we are not ignorant of his devices. We are so, that's, what, that's another scripture that says that. This one says we, we ought to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil by putting on the whole armor of God. Let's talk about the whole armor of God for just a bit. And we're, we're coming to a close here in about uh, 10 minutes or so. Let's look at the armor of God. Now, I'm, this is a very interesting passage because um, you probably, like I am in a lot of ways, it helps you to visualize things, right? And that's what this passage does. Putting on, because we got the helmet, we got the sword, and we got the armor, and we got the shoes, and we got all this armor, and we see this soldier, he's all armored up and ready to go. And, and all that's good, but sometimes if we get so wrapped up in the imagery, we may lose the real meat of what's being said. So I want us to go through this passage about the armor of God, and don't worry about what is the shield, and don't worry about what is the helmet, and don't worry about those things. Let's look at what the real point is. Those things are used to, to focus our attention on something else, right? It's always the breastplate of... The helmet of, it's not the helmet and the breastplate that's important, it's those of whatever that's important. So let's see what those things are. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. In other words, if we don't have these things on, we're susceptible to being deceived, to defeat, to going through great pain and discomfort if we don't have these things on like we're supposed to. So it says, having, your, having girded your waist, so let's not worry about the belt that you girded with, but what is it that we gird with? Truth. Truth is the point there, not the belt. Truth is the point. Truth will always prevail, folks. And having put on the breastplate of what? Righteousness. Let me ask you this. Where does your righteousness come from? Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that He, when we come to Him, He imputes to us His righteousness. He takes our sin upon Himself, and in this exchange, which we call justification, He He takes away our sin and righteousness is imputed to us through the blood of Jesus. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand because of His righteousness alone, that song says. Dressed in His righteousness alone. So we, truth is important here and righteousness is important here. 
that we do righteous deeds to, that we be righteous. All the responsibility for it all is not on Him, but He empowers us through His righteousness to let that be seen in how we live and be righteous. And then having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of what? Peace is the important part there. The peace of God which passeth all understanding. And then the shield of what? Faith. With which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of what? My goodness, if we don't have salvation, we're not even on step one yet. Right? So salvation is obviously important there. And then take the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. You've got to believe the Bible to come to Christ and then learn how to live. That's what's important. I, I'm just suggesting that we don't need to get all... We don't need to get lost in these pieces of armor and, and lose focus on what's really being said because the message here is that we need to make sure that we are taking truth and righteousness and peace and faith and salvation and the Word of God, and then it ends up by saying in verse 18, praying all ways with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Prayer. Can everybody say prayer? Prayer. Wow. How can you ever, how can we ever, how can I ever expect to have intimacy and a close relationship with the Lord without prayer? True? That's why the Bible says, praying, how often? Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. And then he says, and pray for me too. Pray for me that utterance may be given. What's utterance mean? Words. Pray for me that words may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. And where is he? He's in prison. I'm going to tell you what, I love that. The man's in prison. And he's not praying, oh Lord, get me out. He's praying, Lord, give me the message I need to share with these people while I'm in. That utterance, words may be given to me that I may be op able to open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an, an ambassador in chains. Do you know that when you speak up for the Lord Jesus from day to day, you are an ambassador for Christ? You're representing Him. What a privilege. You think Nikki Haley has been... Um, has received honor since she became Secretary of State? <laughs> Looks like to me she sure has. None of us had hardly heard about her um, on the Secretary of State Ambassador to um, the United Nations. That's what I'm thinking of. She's the ambassador. So when we think about that, we're an ambassador for Christ. That's, a, that's an important, strategic, valuable calling to have, to be able to speak up for Christ, stand up for Christ, represent Christ everywhere we go. For I am an ambassador in chains. You know what? When things aren't going really well in your life, and it's some people say life stinks at certain times, you know, when that's happening in your life, God just may have a purpose for you being where you are and can use you mightily in those circumstances. If he could use Paul in prison and had a job for him, and Paul, who was a praying man, realized it was not God's will for him to be out. It was God's will for him to be in. And what he needed was grace and strength and a voice to share the good news with these people who needed it. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it, that is in my captivity, in my being locked up, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. Anybody have any comments or questions? I have some prayer requests that I need to share before we pray.
A friend of Lisa Revis, a friend that she works with, has a son named Kyle, 13 years old, had an abnormal EKG now going to the cardiologist, that was today, uh, and asking for prayer that everything would be okay for him. So please, if you would, uh, pray for Kyle. And also, uh, most of you know Chris Bradford and Chrissy. Chris's dad, Ronnie Bradford, uh, is a pastor. He was pastoring the church that he's at right now when Chris was born. So it's 35 years or so he's been at that church. But uh, Ronnie is his name, Ronnie Bradford. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, Ronnie has had um, a terrible rash, as it turns out, it's cancer on his skin. And they've done some testing and determined that he has a very rare um, skin cancer. It's not like a melanoma. It's, it's a skin cancer that's manifesting here. But he's in the hospital now and tomorrow having tests run to see if this has, has gone to his bones. Uh, he's already scheduled for chemotherapy. So that shows you how uh, serious that is. Ronnie Bradford. And Chris has asked that we remember his dad. Uh, Chris is obviously very concerned about that. Uh, David Stacy um, uh, came by today, and David has um, blood clots in several places in his body, and he's on blood thinners as they're trying to um, weaken those things out and get rid of them. I mean, in his legs, and his arms, and his lungs, in different places, the tests have shown blood clots throughout. He actually had a stroke uh, back around Thanksgiving. Uh, when they began to discover all this. So uh, pray for David as well. And if you have any needs that you want to share tonight before we pray, feel free. Donna? Um, Angie Davis asked us to pray for Brandon McCauley. He's 47 years old. He's in critical care in um, Jacksonville, Florida. He has two organs that have failed. It's Angie's cousin. Um, she asked that we pray for healing. And he has a wife and two children, and he and his wife both are in the Navy. Wow. Let's remember that. Ashley? Um, my grandfather had a cancerous spot taken off of his tongue a while back, and um, now he's had more pain in my back, and they said they didn't take enough, and I want to take more. Um, and he was concerned it's going to affect his speech and being able to poop on Sundays. And, right. Um, he's going for a second Okay, let's remember that, please. Any others want to share a need? I'm sorry, Eddie? Family. Family, okay, let's remember that. Okay, would you stand with me? It's nice to have Ruby with us tonight. She's an employee here at the daycare for the last few weeks and joined us tonight for Bible study. How nice. Thank you. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for your love and mercy and grace. You're a God with whom nothing is too difficult. Do you understand? You have the power. You have the ability. Lord, we just tonight bring these needs to you and lift them to you and ask that you would work and move and minister in each of these requests in accordance with your perfect will. You're a healer. You're a savior. You're a deliverer. And Lord, we just pray that you would minister to each of these needs. I'm, I'm not smart enough to know, Lord, what needs to be done in many situations. But I do know that you tell us in your word to look to you in times like this and to make this prayer. Lord, may your kingdom come and may your will be done in our hearts and in our lives and in every need that's been shared here tonight. Minister to these needs, we pray. You're an awesome God, and we do love you. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our church. I see you at work. I know that you're moving. I know that you're hearing our prayers. And, Lord, I'm asking you to continue your work. May your, your will be done. May your kingdom come, O oh Lord, in our church, in this fellowship here. Make us what you want us to be. And, O oh Lord, do help us to have spiritual insight. Enough to know what we need to put off and what we need to put on. What we need to stay away from and what we need to run to. What we need to get out of our lives and what we need to commit to. Oh, give us that wisdom. 
that revelation and that desire, we pray. Minister to all of our church family, Lord, some who are not here tonight, they have special needs. You understand those. We yield them to you. Even now, we ask that you would take this coming Sunday and use it for your honor and your glory. Edify your people. Encourage your people. Heal and save and deliver your people. Meet their needs, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here tonight.